0: So for those of you that don't know, that scene is taken from The Chosen, which is an excellent, excellent free show that is a dramatization of the life of Jesus. And it's an excellent connection because a lot of times we mill over and we just breeze over these attitudes that Jesus talks about. If you're a church person, you know these is the Beatitudes. But these are the attitudes that Jesus says. These people are blessed if they do that. And I encourage, if you haven't seen that TV show, you should see that TV show because it's excellent. Now, if you're one of those people that everything has to be exactly right according to every word said in the Bible, you may not like that series as much. It's a dramatization. It's another viewpoint on it. It's a good way to humanize the person of Jesus that we can actually interact and see, and helps us grasp it. So it's a great series, and in that he talks about it. I mean, he kind of outlines why would we even why would Jesus put this in this this? If you're not familiar, um, these things that Jesus is talking about, this is called the uh, the Sermon on the Mount. This is his opening to the sermon on the Mount. They're almost like a preamble. It's like a, hey, pay attention to, because everything else is coming, but it, you got to get these right, or the other things really aren't going to matter as much. If you don't get these right, I mean, if you, don't, if you only take away these things, it's almost like Jesus is saying, this is where you've got to pay attention to, and this is where you've got to be. These are the things that you need to have. Now, to give you some idea, we don't know the exact location of the Sermon on the Mount the exact location of the Sermon on the Mount. We're not really sure, but what we have is we have a general idea of kind of what it would be. I've got a picture here in the notes. We believe that it was on a hillside near the Sea of Galilee, obviously Sermon on the Mount, right? So we believe that, and it creates a natural amphitheater. So these are what's called the Horns of Hattin. So you can see Jesus would probably have been over either on that side or on this side, and people would have gathered around him. And it would have created a natural amphitheater. Here's another cool part. This was a strategic location or any of the locations that he would have picked that would have made sense that matched the things he's talking about because there's tons of towns around there. And even in, in the days when Jesus was walking, there were towns and people there. So what we believe probably happened was people were following and hearing about this guy, Jesus, this rabbi that was challenging the religious leaders and he, then he was doing some, pretty crazy miracles too, so we don't know what's going on there. They're not really sure. They're, the people aren't really sure where he fits in. They just know he's talking like a Messiah. And then he starts to have a, he says, hey, you know, we're going to have a sermon on the mount, or we're going to have a sermon where I'm just going to kind of talk about all these things. So we believe that he, him and his disciples probably invited people from the surrounding areas and pulled everybody in and said, hey, pay attention to these things. In fact, we believe the things he taught in the sermon on the mount more than likely, was not a one-time, one-deal kind of thing. It was probably, in fact, many scholars agree, that it was probably things Jesus taught all throughout, that he put it all together in the Sermon on the Mount, but he probably talked about it more than just there. They just didn't write it down because they didn't feel the need to, or maybe they'd heard it so many times they, they didn't write it down. But Matthew, we're lucky, Matthew does write it down. Matthew does kind of lock it in and pay attention for us so we're able to figure it out. And you go, okay, Brandon, why do we need to pay attention to, the, to these attitudes? Well, it's interesting because in these attitudes, he, they all begin with blessed, which, show of hands, how many people would like to be blessed in their life? Just anybody, okay. Everybody would like to be blessed. I don't know of any of you that say you don't want to be blessed. If you don't want to be blessed, I'm sorry, we should set a meeting because there's so, probably some other issues going on, right? Everybody should want to be blessed, right? We all want to be blessed. And then, not only that, so he says, blessed are those people, and he would put an attitude in there, and then after that, he would follow it up with a reward. So blessed are those, here's the reward for them. And it's almost like there's this idea of if you have these attitudes in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, the way Jesus was talking about it, these things are going to happen for you. Now, there's not a uh, one, blessed are those who give 10% of their tithes because they will be millionaires. That's not in there. Blessed are those who show up with their nicest church outfits because they'll get clout from everybody at church. Like, there's none of those types of things. The attitudes that he's talking about are fundamental core characteristics of the individual. So, consequently, what we're going to talk about over the next couple weeks are going to challenge you. They're meant to do that. What we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks are the attitudes that Jesus said that we should have. If you're a Jesus follower or you're a, you're a Christian, you want to be Christ-like, these are non-negotiable for us. We don't get to say, I want everything else that Jesus has to offer <laughs> except for those attitudes. I don't want none of those because they're hard and I want the super simple Jesus. I want the easy Jesus. We don't get to make that distinction. If you're not a Jesus follower, I encourage you just to listen. Just hear it out and see if maybe having these attitudes might benefit and improve your life, because I do agree that every one of these attitudes also do that for us, too. But today's attitude is going to challenge you significantly, and it's the first one. The first attitude is going to challenge you significantly, and I think it's for a purpose. Because if you don't get this attitude, if you can't get this one, the rest are going to be very, very hard. The rest are going to be very, very hard. They're going to be very, very difficult. This one almost makes the other ones simpler, almost makes them more attainable. But if you can't get past this first one, if you can't get past this first one, it's just going to make things harder. And as we begin to talk about the first one, you will recognize People in your life that don't have this attitude, and you will begin to recognize people that you've experienced that you don't like to be around because they do not have this attitude. And you, because I, I know you guys, you all are great people. You wouldn't be here if you weren't, right? You're great people. So you don't want to be like that. You, you're smart. You don't, you see that stuff. You don't want to be that way. So as we begin, Jesus is on the, sur- is on the mount. Everybody's attention is there got them all locked in, and we are ready to go. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, which means he's teaching to many, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down, because this is the longest sermon recorded, so my man was probably up there for a minute. He needed a break. Somebody had to bring the preacher some water, right? His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, his disciples are not just referring to the twelve, referring to everybody, the crowds, the people who would follow him. That's why you don't really get a whole lot in the New Testament, and this is a sidebar. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but it's food for thought. You don't see in the the Gospels, Jesus doesn't call his followers believers. That's too easy. If you just believe, that's, that's that's low bar, man. That's simple. That's no problem. That's easy. He calls the other, everybody else, the people that follow him, he calls them disciples, that they would learn and behave the way that he taught and the things that he taught. So anyway, that's not a sermon, just a thought. That one's free. See, you don't, we're not even going to bring the offering plates back around. Um, come on. It's okay. Laugh. Everybody breathe. It's okay. All right. So his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And he said, here's the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, maybe you're smarter than me, and maybe you you paid more attention to me, maybe you're more spiritual than I was, but when I first began reading the Bible years ago, I ran into that, and I was like, that's confusing, Jesus. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? How do you do that? I don't even know what you're trying to say, right? So I don't know what you mean there. So we're just, you know, in this, and let's be honest. Some of us read, if we hit the Sermon on the Mount, we hit this portion, we read through it quickly, and then we pop smoke and get out of there, and then he talks about salt and light after that, and we're like, I don't know, I don't want to be salt or light, I don't understand that either. So let's just go to the, let's go to the real easy stuff where he makes it real simple for us. But the truth is, this is fundamental to the Sermon on the Mount. This is fundamental to understanding the other Beatitudes. This is fundamental if you just give me enough leeway to be a good human. Is to be poor in spirit. And he, his, his thing, he says, is they are poor in spirit, for they, or for theirs, is the kingdom of heaven. Or another translation says, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, I didn't understand that for a long time. Then I began to do some research on it over time. And then I, I, as I was doing even more research, as we prepared for this series months ago, um, poor in spirit actually means Humility humility. That being poor in spirit means that you aren't saying you have all the answers and you figured it all out. Being poor in spirit is saying, no, 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 God's got more going on there. He's got it figured out. An attitude of humility is a position that I need to place my heart in. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about it from an Old Testament standpoint. And we used the example of Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar, if you guys remember that, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, and the arrogance that was associated with those two and how it created a downfall in them. And this time, Jesus doesn't give us a warning as a downfall. He gives us an encouragement, hangs a carrot out in front of us, and says, you can inherit the kingdom of heaven. You, You can have the kingdom of heaven if you would just be so humble in your attitude and in your spirit. Now, Christians aren't known for their humility, are they? I mean, in fact, you probably know people that aren't humble that are Christians. You probably had one, all eyes up here, okay? We're all friends. Don't look around, okay? Don't look at your husband. Don't look at your wife, all right? But we know people who are not humble. We know people who are prideful. We all know people like that. We all know those people that think they have the answer, and they're the hero of the story, And those individuals, Jesus says, don't quite have the ability to inherit the kingdom of heaven. They can't really partake in it sometimes because they're so arrogant they can't get past themselves. So the next question we have to ask that we obviously want to come to an answer to is, okay, Brandon, I understand this is great. This is so important. Being humble is so important. But what do we do? I mean, how do I maintain a humble attitude Like how how do we do that? What's the steps that we take? How do we figure that out? And now, lucky for us, James, the brother of Jesus, talks about this. And the reason this one is key, the reason this one is key is because it's fundamental to our faith also. You've got to be poor in spirit and understanding that without Jesus, and I'm talking to the Christians right now, that without Jesus, you were dead to your sins. You have to understand that as, as a Christian, in what you believe in, the, in, in your baptism and accepting your salvation, you need to be poor in spirit because you couldn't save yourself. You were not the hero of the story. So how dare any uh, one of us, inclu- me included, be so arrogant to think that we could provide all the answers, that we had the solutions all the time. And Jesus says, those people that are able to step back and go, I need God in my life. Those people that are able to step back and say, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Your presence is what we need. The people that are able to do that, Jesus says, now those people, those are the people that are going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Those are the people for, that will be part of the kingdom of heaven. So how do we do it? What do we do? Well, luckily for us, as I said, James, the brother of Jesus, Jesus. Did it. Now, I would be irresponsible if I breezed over that point. James, the brother of Jesus. I don't know what your brother would have to do to prove to you that he was your Lord and Savior. Maybe he's tried and it didn't work and y'all got into a fist fight. I don't know. But I can tell you, I've got brothers, okay? Got brothers? I have children that have brothers. None of them believe that. They would kill one another before they accepted that. But here is James, the brother of Jesus. In fact, one of the extra-biblical accounts call him the Lord's brother. The brother of Jesus sits back and gives us some wisdom, talking specifically about this. So he's talking about humility. This is around the end of James' letter. James' letter, he's writing to the church in Jerusalem. He's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He's trying to guide them in the right ways. Jesus has come. He's gone. The church has been planted. The church is expanding. And James is, is leading the one there in Jerusalem. And it's just a weird situation for him. He's, he's got a lot of people. He's trying to figure out how to lead. So he pulls everybody's attention in in this letter and goes, okay, we're going to talk about something here that this thing's not going to work unless you all just kind of pay attention and are poor in spirit. He says that is why Scripture says, which when you see that in the New Testament, Scripture says is pointing to the Old Testament, okay? The Hebrew Bible. So he's leveraging the Old Testament because he's talking to Jewish people in Jerusalem. So people in Jerusalem understand the Scriptures. You don't hear Paul lean on that a whole lot when he's talking to the Gentiles because they don't understand. They don't have the Scriptures. They don't know the Old Testament. That's why you see it more from some of these letters and some of these positions where they are talking to specifically Jewish people. So, Jewish people, he leans in and he says, hey, you've heard it said, Scripture has told you. This is why Scripture says, James tells us in chapter 4, verse 6, this is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. He's quoting a psalm. He leans back and he says, we've seen this in God's character. He doesn't enjoy the proud people. In fact, the proud people think they're the hero of their own story. The proud people think they have all the answers. The prideful people think there can't be challenged. The prideful people, prideful pe- that that's a tongue twister, y'all. I didn't practice that one. I need to practice the pr- prideful people. The prideful people James says, the prideful people, they don't believe that there's any more research to be done. The prideful people believe that they have all the answers all the time and it's done. So James is leaning back into the to to show God's character throughout Scripture. So he leans back and he goes, God opposes the proud and he shows favor to the humble. And if you don't believe me, I can give you a couple Old Testament stories. If, if you're having trouble believing James, we can go back to a couple Old Testament stories. We It's all one a couple weeks ago with Daniel, where God opposes the proud. David got a little proud, and he fell because of it. Moses got a little proud, and he had issues with it. So, what he says next is something that we can take heart in, we can grab a hold of. It gives us some handles to really figure this out, like how do I maintain a humble attitude? James says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit yourselves, than to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Which is interesting that he ju- puts those two together and like juxtaposes them one, against one another. That, that it's almost like if you give in to pride, you're giving in to the enemy. And I'm telling you, I, look look, guys, I'm not preaching at you, I'm talking with you. Okay, I'm just as susceptible to this as anybody, probably more so than some of you sitting in the seats today. And I lean into this all the time, as best I can, every opportunity that I can. Submitting, submitting yourself to God is how you say, I'm not the hero of my own story. I don't have all the solutions. I don't have all the answers. God, you do. And the inverse is if you're not willing to submit to God, then you aren't resisting the devil, and he ain't going to flee from you. Which means he's going to be all up in your grill. He's going to be living at your table. I don't know about you, I don't want none of that smoke. And James just lets us know that that the key to a humble heart, it begins with submitting to God, submitting to him. That means there's going to be moments when what we know about God in the scriptures has to supersede your own desires. And that's uncomfortable for every one of us sitting here. Because when you've reached that point, that's called sanctification. And ain't many of us ever reach that point in our lives. But that means there's going to be moments in your life when you can't say what you want. There's going to be moments in your life that you can't treat somebody the way that you want to treat them. That means there's going to be moments in your life when you can't behave just any way you want to behave. There's going to be moments in your life when you have to say no to some of the things that you love to do. There's going to be moments in your life when if you're going to submit yourselves to God, and this is only for those that follow Jesus, this is something we've got to figure out. If you're not a Jesus follower, maybe there's some things you know that you already kind of need to kind of push away, right? But if you're a Jesus follower, hey, there's moments when you are just going to have to say no. And there's moments when you're just going to have to sit in the tension and, and, and deny yourself some certain things, or like the Apostle Paul, or the, like what Jesus calls, says, pick up your cross and carry, me, or, and carry it, and follow me. That if we are going to truly submit ourselves to God, there are going to be things we can't do. There are going to be things that we want to do. There are going to be enjoyable things that we want to do and behaviors we want to exhibit, and attitudes that we want to have, and opinions that we want to voice that we simply can't because that is not submitting ourselves to God. He's not done. He leans in again. He just kind of draws our attention to it. He says, Come near to God, and He will come near to you. He's pointing to the fact that this is hard, but when you want it, God will help you get there. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, Now, he's imploring people to draw close to God, to leave the sin behind, which you've heard many times. But he uses a phrase that shouldn't make every one of us uncomfortable, because he's talking to the Jewish people. In fact, he's talking to Christians that are trying to justify their behavior. And he says, You double minded. You double minded. You know what that is? That's a cultural Christian. We've talked about it before. Those are the people that come to church on Sunday. This is the double-mindedness. He says, hold on, you say you follow Jesus, but your actions don't do that. Because you want people to see you follow Jesus, which, you know, is great and grand and everything else. You know, we want people to follow Jesus. And this is James, the brother of Jesus. He leans in and he says, you want people to know you follow Jesus. But your behavior doesn't say that. You want people to know you follow Jesus, but you're not submitting yourself to the Lord ever. Ever. In fact, you're doing everything that you want to do, even though you know that Jesus told us not to do it. That's what he's leaning in and telling his, the followers that are there in Jerusalem. And for us, that translates to, yeah, I come to church, and yeah, 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 I love God, love people. I'm all about it. But then when I go back to, you know, back to work on Monday, I'm making decisions and business deals in accordance with my best interest and my will, not my Heavenly Father's. It translates to, yeah, 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 I give in the offering, and I make sure everybody sees when that plate comes by. They see that big old check go in there. They see that big old thing, big old amount of money go in there. Or, or I make sure that people know that I gave to the church. Why? Because I want people to see how honorable I am, how generous I am. When in reality, you're not actually living a generous life, because the call is to live a generous life, not to just be generous in big spurts whenever you know, whatever. It's like, no, the, the call is to live a generous life. He, he says the double-minded people are the people that sit back and go, oh, yeah, no, I'm all about my wife at men's group. I mean, and when we're there, I'm just singing her praises, and I am so respectful and I'm so honoring to her But then when I get into work and I'm around the water cooler with the boys, I'm going to say something different. Or I'm in the locker room, I'm going to say something different, my attitude's going to change. James says, those people are double-minded. I love people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, for you double-minded people, the people that love people until it's inconvenient for you, and then you don't love them, you show grace to people until it gets a little hard, and then you don't show grace anymore. Those people that, you know, I love Jesus until he tells me to carry my own cross, and then I'm like, hold on, Jesus, you heavy, you strong, you do that, like, you just kind of step away from it. He says those people are double-minded, and they were all over the church in Jerusalem, which is why he's writing this letter. He says you need to turn away from those things. Don't give in to them. Don't split it. Don't become double-minded. Don't try to be two people. Don't try to come in here and be a Christian and go out and be somebody secular and of the world. If Jesus is your king, Jesus is your king everywhere. Somebody say amen. And if you're a Christian, that's uncomfortable. That is simply uncomfortable. Because at the end of the day, what it really says is you are the hero of the story. And it really says that your needs, your desires, your wants are greater than your heavenly fathers. And if we believe what we read, and we believe what I speak about in here, and what the other speakers speak about in here, and we believe the songs we sing, then that means our attitude has to reflect not a prideful attitude, but a poor in spirit attitude. That we aren't the heroes of our own story. Jesus is. And we have to wrestle that to the ground. He continues talking about change. He says, grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. He says, you need to be comfortable changing your attitude. You need to, be, you need to stop being double-minded and be comfortable. And this is, again, talking with you. To change our attitude and not make excuses to it. Not sit back and and write it off and say, yeah, 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 this is so uncomfortable, I don't want to deal with it, so I'm just going to pretend that's not in the Bible. Or I'm just, you know, that's so uncomfortable, that pressures me so much, and then i got to love those people that way, and I can't stand her at work, right? So I can't stand her, so that means I don't have to, I'm just, God, come on, you don't really want me to, like, be nice. Come on. God says, I absolutely do. Change your attitude, you double-minded. And James says that if we're not careful, that attitude, that double-minded attitude, it all comes from a place of pride. It all comes from a place being proud in spirit. I've got the answers. I'm right. She's wrong. I'm not willing to learn. I'm not willing to understand. I'm not willing. No, no, no. Me, me, me. I, I, I. And it becomes dangerous. And he sits back He says, look, you can't do that. You can't do. And then he gives us our action point, the thing that we need to do. Here's the key. Okay, everybody, in fact, is it, are we ready? Yes? We ready? In fact, look at your neighbor and say, I'm ready. All right, here it is. This is it. This is the key to having humility in your life and the key to being poor in spirit. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. You want to be successful? Humble yourself before the Lord. You want to be blessed? Humble yourself before the Lord. You want to be lifted up? Humble yourself before the Lord. You want to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Humble yourself before the Lord. And and that means you don't have all the answers. You aren't the one that's going to solve this problem. You're not like Nebuchadnezzar and you're not like Belshazzar where they go around saying, look at all the great things I've done. Look at this great house I built and all this great stuff I have. They're not, that's not a humble person. That's not being humble before the Lord. That's being proud before the Lord. That's saying, God, did you see what I did? I mean, come on, did you really see it? That was great. That was so good, Lord. Like, uh, And then he's <laughs> going to be uncomfortable. The thanksgiving is an afterthought. That's how you know you're prideful. That's how you know you're, you're dealing with pride. If the thanksgiving for what you have or the thanksgiving for what you've accomplished is an afterthought, you have not humbled yourself before the Lord. And that punched me square in the chest. And I hope it did you too. Because that's not what we are called to do. It's an attitude that we simply cannot have because it is not in line with what Jesus called us to. And it's not being poor in spirit. It's being proud in spirit. And humility before God should be our posture if you're a Jesus follower. Now, if you're not a Jesus follower, I can make some pretty good arguments on how humility should just be your posture, because you know people in your life that you can't stand, because they think they have all the answers. You know people in your life that you hate to work with. In fact, if I asked you right now, and I gave you a microphone, you could probably list off at least three names of people you hate to work with, because they are so arrogant, and they are so prideful. And Jesus says that that doesn't just stop here on earth, that actually translates to your relationship between your heavenly Father and you. So, okay, Brandon, how do we figure that out? How do we humble ourselves before the Lord? What does that look like? How do we do that? How do I I even begin to do that? How do I become poor in spirit? Like, come on, I get it. I got to be humility. What does that look like? And it looks like following God's will, even when it costs you something. That means knowing God's will and, and doing something different because it costs you something. In fact, I, I teach it this way. Oftentimes, God's will and your will are competing interests. Can we be real for just a second? There's sometimes that God's will and your will is competing interests. And I teach it like a fork in a road. So you have the opportunity, you're traveling down the road of life. Something causes a change in, in the road. And you've got the left path and you've got the right path. You have God's will, your will, and sometimes there are many times those line up and praise God, because then there's not a lot of prayer in those moments, there's not a lot of stress in those moments, there's not a lot of tension in those moments, those moments are the best. But there's other times where there seems to be a fork in the road, where you go, God, this is what I want, and this is how I want to behave, and this is what I want to do, and it's very obvious through prayer, or through scripture reading, or through religious counsel, that there's another path. And that other path may feel like it's going to cost you something. In fact, most of the time it does. And when you come to that fork in the road, you have to ask and discuss it with yourself honestly. Am I going to decide to go with my will or am I going to follow God's will? Am I going to try, and this is not I'm going to try to justify Scripture to fit my will because that never works anyway. That's not I'm going to try to make excuses and only call the people that are going to affirm me and the way I feel and the way I behave and the way I treat him and the way I treat him. That's not. That's not what this is. This is an inherent, you look and you see and you go, this is what I want to do, but I know this is what God has for me. I know this is what God wants me to do. I know this is what he wants to say. In those moments, your humility is tested. You have the opportunity to follow him, and it might cost you something. It might, might cost you some pleasure, might cost you some joy, might cost you in the way of having an uncomfortable conversation, might cost you in the way of having to deal with the person that you don't want to deal with, or the attitude that you don't want to deal with, or working with that boss that you can't stand to be around. Sometimes, following the will of God is going to cost you something, but luckily, Jesus warned us. He warned us. He said, pick up your cross and follow me. He didn't say this is going to be easy. In fact, he said, you're going to have trouble in the world, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus warned us it's not going to be simple. So how dare we think it is? So I encourage you to, to, to add this practice to your life. And this is not an easy thing. This is a daily thing. I could come up here and give you a five-step program. It ain't going to work. You're not going to remember any of it anyway. But here's what I know. Starting off and starting strong is one of the most important things. So if you're one of those Christians that you truly like, you're like, yeah, you know what? I want to live a poor in spirit life. I want to live my life in accordance with God's will. I want to humble myself before the Lord and, and not become one of these people where I'm the hero of my own story then if that's the case, I encourage you to pray this prayer. Make it a daily prayer, take a picture of it, put it wherever, I don't care, I don't know. But like whatever you need to do, write it down, put it somewhere, make it part of your just daily routine. It's so simple, so easy. And it will begin to change your heart and you will begin to see it change. Just try this simple prayer, Lord, I submit myself to you. I submit my will to your will. Do not exchange the word submit. That is key. Submitting before God's will. Lord, I submit myself to you, and I submit my will to your will. Lord, I submit myself to you, and I submit my will to your will. Simple prayer right after you brush your teeth in the morning. Simple prayer, right as you're making your coffee, you know, because I know some of us drink that plastic Keurig stuff. So you've got a minute, at least a minute and a half, where you're just standing there, probably scrolling on TikTok, and maybe you're learning how to feed goats that you don't have yet. But throw this prayer in. Hey, God, got a second? Lord, I just want to submit myself to you, and I submit my will to your will. Lord, I submit myself to you and I submit my will to your will. And we're echoing the words of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's about to do one of the hardest things that have ever been done. And he stands before his heavenly Father. His friends have fallen asleep in the garden. They're not paying any attention to him. And he sits down and he says, Lord, if you can let this cup pass from me, Father, he doesn't even say Lord. He leans into his relationship and says, if you can let this pass from me, you can hear the strain in his voice in that scripture. But then he follows it up with, God, if you can let this pass from me, let this pass from me. But if not, not my will, but your will. So I don't know about you, but I want to be a not my will, but your will kind of church. I want to be a not my will, but your will kind of man. I want my family to be a not my will, but your will kind of family. And it starts, and like I said, I could give you all these different things, it's not going to matter. It starts Strong And you got to start with just praying this simple prayer. Lord, I submit myself to you and I submit my will to your will. Now imagine what God could do with a person who was poor in spirit like that. Imagine what God could do with a person that submitted themselves to him wholly. Imagine what he could do with a family that placed their heavenly father's will above their own. Imagine what God could do with a church, a group of people. Imagine what He could do if a group of people, if all of us just decided we were going to submit our will to our Heavenly Father's will. We were going to seek His will. We were going to place Him first. We were going to do that. Imagine what He could do in our city. Imagine what He could do in your family. Imagine what He could do in your marriage. Just think of the things that He could do. And it's almost like He's standing in heaven saying, I'm waiting. But you're still the hero of your own story. And if that's the case, you're not poor in spirit. And the poor in spirit are the ones that will inherit the kingdom of heaven. So imagine what he will do. He changed the world once with a group of people like that. And I'm praying that he will do it again, and I think he'll do it again if a group of people. One person, a family, a church would place his will above their will. It's not going to be easy. It's so simple, but it's not easy. So start with that prayer. So, with that, let's pray.